Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Baldanza, joined by Chris Chimes. We appreciate your tuning in this week. We've got an interesting guest and our regular round of news and discussion, so I'm going to turn it over to Chris to get us started. Howdy, Ben, and howdy to our listeners. Uh, We've got a lot to cover today, as you said, but before we start, uh, I do just want to acknowledge the tragedy at Indianapolis Airport last week and let our friends at FedEx know that we're thinking of them. Ben, as for the news, I'm going to mix things up a bit, and to leave room for our guests, we're going to cover the top news in more of a lightning round format to go a little faster, starting with the Boeing 737 MAX news. Last week, we talked a bit about the breaking news of a new electrical issue with the MAX that grounded some of the aircraft. Now it looks like that issue is widening. It does look like it's widening, Chris. And last week, I was a little, maybe a little bit too... um, I don't know if glib is the word, but maybe didn't take it as seriously as I should have. I said, well, it's probably just because this is because of the Max, and if it had been another plane, it might not have happened. Now it's looking like there may be issues that are Max-related. The real question I have now, Chris, is how many arrows can this airplane take before – you know, they do something that even Donald Trump at one point recommended is rebrand the thing or something like that. Um, I'm wondering sort of, you know, where Boeing goes from here with a plane that was so promising and still has a lot of promising ideas, but just seems to be ill-fated. They were picking up some orders and starting to kind of turn things around. From a PR lens, I was just kind of troubled that this past week, there was just like radio silence. I searched for about 10 minutes today, looking for a statement, looking in the Boeing newsroom, looking on the 737 page of their website. I couldn't find anything. Um, and, And the stories from over the weekend all said Boeing declined to comment. So maybe I missed it, but it should have been much easier to find if they had something to say. So I'm just a little concerned that everything's going silent. Uh, Next up, government support for Air Canada. Unlike the nations that have already looked at industry-wide packages, Canada is going company by company. Air Canada landed a $5.9 billion Canadian aid package with many strings attached. Now WestJet awaits its fate. Your thoughts on the Canadian approach? You know, I think this is so interesting, Chris. Canada essentially has a duopoly with Air Canada and WestJet. I know people at Porter and Flair and other places will say, wait a minute, we're here too. But they have two carriers that employ most of the people that work in the aviation sector and support most of the flying in Canada. So to think that they would support one and not the other at the same time is really quite curious to me. To still think of WestJet as this little startup that is out there on the other side of Canada and 
and that our real national carrier is really Air Canada. I think to me, that's really kind of an outdated view of what Canadian aviation is. So I'm kind of surprised at that. It wouldn't have surprised me if they had done something for Air Canada and WestJet and then said, anybody else, you wait in line and, you know, raise your hand. That wouldn't have surprised me. But to not include WestJet at the same time was a surprise to me. I'm going to be a little more direct. I think this approach sucks. And uh, I don't think the government should be playing favorites here. Maybe there's something here that I don't understand. But you put out an aid package, and if you qualify for it and are ready to live to the terms, then all parties should be able to apply. But to kind of go company by company and play favorites or play one off each other, I don't think is what the government should be doing. This week's Airline Confidential News Roundup is brought to you by Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear, touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports across the U.S., moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at clearme.com airlines. Finally, Ben, we've started earnings season for U.S. carriers. Seems like we just finished Q4 2020, and now it's time for Q1. At press time, we only had time to absorb Delta's results, and they reported a $1.2 billion loss. They expect to break even by June, but gave a pessimistic outlook on international travel this summer. What was your take? My take was that these numbers were kind of expected, and I think almost sort of in line, if you will, with the size of Delta and you know the $1.2 billion loss seems kind of almost like they were able to control it a little bit. I know that sounds terrible to say $1.2 billion loss, but they're, they're a huge company, right? If they had given anything but a pessimistic outlook on international travel, I think they would have been seen as being uh, way too bullish or maybe unrealistic. Obviously, while many people are more bullish about domestic summer travel, which is probably driving their view that they will be break even by June is their domestic travel, I'm guessing. But the thought of people traveling in droves, both leisure travelers and business travelers on longer haul international flying just doesn't seem, seems like we're far from that yet. So I would have been shocked if they had given anything but a pessimistic view on the international travel. I think that's another year coming for us. But I was encouraged that they said that they thought they could break even for June just based on the domestic side. Other airlines in the U.S. are more domestic than Delta, meaning that Delta has more international than other carriers. That might suggest uh, that other airlines can also be break-even by June, or maybe even the industry could be close to break-even by June. Well, they set the bar, so we'll see uh, how the other carriers line up over the coming week. Absolutely right. Well, we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. And of course, we want to thank the Seabury Capital Group, a specialty financing and investment banking firm with more than 25 years of experience in aviation, aerospace, financial services, and technology. Explore their expertise and global reach at seaburycapital.com. We've got another great guest to join our conversation this week. Uh, And thanks to Ben for reaching out to his former colleague, David Grizzle. Ben, uh, do you want to take the mic and introduce David? Of course. Listeners, David Grizzle and I have known each other since we worked together at Continental Airlines in the mid-1990s. And so glad to have you here, David. As a way of self-introduction, why don't you tell us about your long and varied history in aviation? 
Well, I will do that, Ben. But let me say, first of all, that the years that I worked with you at Continental were probably the most joyous years of my many years in the airline business. It was great to work with you. You're a tremendous colleague. I've had a great ride, Ben and Chris, in the industry. I actually, when I came out of law school, I I went to Wall Street and began doing deals, having nothing to do with airlines at all, Uh, absolutely nothing. But I was was recruited by a headhunter to come work at New York Air, which was then one of the two subsidiaries of Texas Air Corporation. And they wanted me to come there and to participate in a, it was really a, a taking it private transaction, but it would all, but after it was taken private, we would do a lot of our, our deals through New York Air. And so I went to New York Air first in 1983 and remained in the Texas Air family and its successors until September of 2009. So really quite a long ride uh, with Texas Air and in the industry. I came in to New York Air, Texas Air, as a lawyer, uh, intending to do deals, and I did a number of deals. But in the in the late '90s, middle '90s, really, after we had begun doing the first our first code share alliances, the first one being Alitalia, uh, the, or the first one after our bankruptcy being Alitalia, I began making complaints about the how the our alliances were underperforming because we had no business plans. And my running my mouth off got me the job of, of actually managing from a business perspective, the, the international alliances. And that led to uh, other similar developments on the business side. And so I never really returned to the practice of law uh, at Texas air uh, forever until I left at the end of 2009, when I, when I ironically became the chief counsel of the federal aviation administration. So I had a, a great and very varied experience uh, at Texas Air, for which I'm extremely grateful. Well, well David, you um, commented yourself that you've had a tremendous ride and uh, lots of opportunities, and you've had that unique opportunity to kind of sit on both sides of the public and private sector. How would you compare working in a public company versus the federal government? Chris, I've actually spent almost a quarter of my entire career in the federal government. If you if you combine the year and a half that I spent in Afghanistan with the State Department, and then the five years I spent at the Federal Aviation Administration. And the best way that, that I can describe the difference between the two, which colors every aspect of working in either a public company or the federal government is that in, in a public company, a public-private company like Continental, like Texas Air, your shareholders demand performance and failure is not an option. Now, I say this having gone through three bankruptcies in airlines. And so I guess you could say that failure is not an option. It is an option, but there are severe consequences when you, in fact, fail. But suffice it to say that the basic ethic of a, of a, of a private company is that success is not optional. Success is mandatory. It's the only thing that's expected. And in the federal government, at least on the civil side, success is always optional. That's... That's pretty harsh, but um, <laughs> it's it's probably truthful. So that is, that is quite harsh, David. But it probably is truthful. I agree. So you mentioned your time in Afghanistan. What was that like, David? 
I need to tell you that I received a call quite unexpectedly from from Rumsfeld's roommate at Princeton asking me if I would join 11 other corporate executives in going to Afghanistan to take over the oversight of the reconstruction there. Uh, Rumsfeld had decided that USAID knew knew nothing about doing reconstruction in a post-conflict environment. And he cut a deal with Colin Powell, whereby the Pentagon could recruit up to a dozen corporate executives who would go and take over different parts of the reconstruction. They would have to become State Department uh, foreign service officers, limited term foreign service officers, but the Pentagon got to recruit them itself. And so I was one of those. It never, they never actually recruited the other 11. They got uh, maybe seven people all together to go over and do it. And so my assignment was really to oversee four areas of heavy reconstruction, uh, aviation, power, telecommunications, and roads. And in that job, I, I was both a mentor to the ministers over, overseeing each of those four areas, and I was an advisor to Ambassador Khalizad about each of these four areas. And I cost the federal government $100,000 a month. That wasn't, I mean, most of that, almost none of it went to me, but if you include all the security costs for me and all of the other ancillary expenses, I cost the federal government $100,000 a month. And in my estimation is I maybe delivered $1,000 a month in value. Uh, but it was a tremendous experience. I spent the entire time I was there living in a converted shipping container with four feet of sandbags on top. I was there for probably the halcyon days uh, in Afghanistan post-conflict. Uh, because at the time that I was within a month of leaving, we had four rocket attacks. We had had no rocket attacks prior to that. And, and, up to, and after I, until the time I left, we had had no suicide bombings. And so I was really there for the best time to be in Afghanistan uh, after, the, uh, after the, the war against the Taliban. But it was not anywhere near as productive as what Donald Rumsfeld had hoped. Because while it was true that USAID d- knew very little about about reconstruction in a post-conflict environment, senior corporate executives coming out of public companies knew even less. And so uh, we were largely on a fool's errand, but it was a, it was a very exciting and very personally uh, enjoyable experience. So, so David, I've got to ask you uh, what your thoughts are this week is uh, you process President Biden's announcement about the withdrawal. Yeah, I've I've anticipated it for a long time. I mean, obviously, it was President Trump's intention to do the same thing. And I don't have, I'm not very optimistic, Chris, about how the outcome will be. I mean, I have have fears of a replay of Saigon 75. But the fact is that we've been there for a long time, and we have not been able to achieve most of our objectives. And the truth is that that George Bush was correct when he went with his first statement that that we can't do nation building. And the reality is we can't. The only people who can build a nation are the citizens of that nation. And the Afghans have have unfortunately been unable to build their nation for hundreds of years. And I think it was, 
naivete on our part to think that we could come in and build a nation that had eluded them for several centuries. So along with your Afghani hat, another one of the hats you wore was running the ATC system here in the U.S. Uh, where do you land on the, the debate about privatization for U.S. ATC? I think that privatization is the only way, the only pathway to our having consistently state-of-the-art technology to assist the extraordinarily professional air traffic controllers and technicians that we have working at the FAA. And let me be very clear, Chris, when I say privatization, I'm not talking about creating a for-profit company, even a for-profit company with uh, uh, with benign intent like Nats in, in the UK. I'm talking about a type of, of stakeholder controlled, not-for-profit, essentially what is done in Canada. The reason that it is essential to take to, to to create that structure is that the FAA has consistently lagged behind in its modernization, not because it doesn't have very excellent professionals there and planners, but the budgetary process that every federal agency works under forces the decision process to be so elongated that decisions are made about technology that will only be implemented a decade later. So for example, when we completed our installation of our new in-route automation system called ERAM in 2014, we were putting in place chips that had been specced and procured in 2004. And when you're in that type of process, which completely defeats the, the concept of most American technology-dependent companies of incremental improvement, you're always going to be very far behind. And no agency within the federal government, despite their many efforts, have been able to circumscribe the, the budgetary process, which forces a tremendous gap between decision and implementation and, and, and requires and defeats any concept of incremental uh, implementation. So I'm still, I'm still, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon, uh, maybe never, but I'm still a, a huge fan of it because we still need it. That's a fantastic view, David, and I think it's very insightful too. Let's go back to your private work again. I mean, work in the private sector. You've worked for one of the most despised airline CEOs, Frank Lorenzo, <laughs> and one of the most admired airline CEOs in Gordon Bethune. What did you learn from each of these two, you know, in one case controversial, in one case lauded character? <laughs> well, I will tell you, Frank actually was the one who personally hired me into the airline business. And so for that, I'm, I, I will always be grateful to Frank for having done that. I worked very closely with Frank for more than a decade. And the best way that I can summarize the difference between Frank and Gordon is that Frank genuinely, and I will say justifiably, thought that he was the smartest guy in any room that he found himself in. He was brilliant. But because of his confidence in his position vis-a-vis -vis all the other humans around him, he found the other people in the organization to be 
persons to be managed, to manage them as if they were uh, a factor of production as opposed to a collaborator in decision-making. And I contrast that with Gordon, and I think you can confirm this, Ben. Gordon never, ever thought that he was the smartest guy in the room. In fact, he would he would say that if he found himself being the smartest guy in any room at Continental, he had failed in his hiring process. So Gordon never thought that he was the smartest guy in the room, but here's what he did think, and justifiably. He did think that if you put him in a room with other people and compared that room to other rooms filled with people, that his room would be the smartest room in the building because Gordon was able to bring out the best in each individual and then bring those contributions together in a powerfully productive way that made Continental, for its time, the greatest airline in America. That's actually a wonderful distinction in the way you describe that. And I will back up exactly what you said about Gordon. He's hands down the best CEO I ever worked directly for. And I learned more from him about good leadership than probably any single person that I've worked for. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I, I just sort of say, when I came into the FAA, when I came in to run air traffic control, I just pulled out my Gordon Bethune book and started, you know, <laughs> playing one play, but play after another. Uh, I have to admit, I've never met anyone from the continental days who worked for Gordon who thinks otherwise. So that's an admirable trait and he leaves an admirable legacy because um, people continue to learn from him and follow his, his teachings. Absolutely. Absolutely. So David, we've got a lot of uh, aviation geeks that listen to us, so I'm not sure <laughs> that um, they would they would need this description. But pretend pretend an alien dropped onto your front door, and you had to describe to him the current state of the airline industry. How would you do that? I would explain to them first of all that the airline industry is fundamentally about transporting people in the air. And that uh, they do that with incredibly sophisticated equipment operated by adequately trained handlers. But that the closest analogy from other human experiences is probably the game of Monopoly but Monopoly played at 530 miles per hour <laughs> where that the, the, the key to success is controlling territory. That's what, that's what hubs are. Uh, it's what root density is. And so it's all about controlling territory, just like, just like in Monopoly. And it attempts to create a differentiation for customers in certain territory with a product that is otherwise a commodity, all the while creating the illusion of product differentiation. When in fact, there's been, there's very little product differentiation, certainly in the back of the plane. And that's how I would describe, that's what the airline business is today and has been at least since deregulation. Well, and I would think that that alien 
would have a much more honest view of the industry than <laughs> many people who think about the industry today, David. <laughs> well, David, let's go with that theme for one bit more. And if today's airline CEOs got together and brought you in and asked for your wisdom on how to best manage today's environment and prepare for the future, what would you tell the people running the airlines today? You know, and I, it's, you know, because I've been in the industry so long, I, I know pretty much, I know personally pretty much all of the, all of the CEOs. And I would remind all of them something that they certainly knew in an earlier era, which was that there are only two things that you can say about your business if you're in the airline business. Either you're, you're making money or you're running a high load factor. You've got to be able to say one of those two things. Obviously, making money is better, but if you can't make money, then you got to be able to say you're running a high load factor. And so I believe that right now, the pathway to success and recovery for the airlines is to run high load factors. Even if they're not turning out the highest RASM that they could get, I believe that they need to be running high load factors right now. And in the process of doing that, they will be coaxing people to get back onto airplanes and to remind them of just how much merit and enjoyment there is in, 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 in living, living life face-to-face. Because we've ultimately got to get business travelers back in place. And pretty soon, they'll be going back to their offices enough that there will be people in a location where you could fly to see them. And so you want you want those 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 potential business flyers to have to have already enjoyed reintroducing the reintroduction into air travel. And and so I believe that that I mean I happen to believe that there will be a full business recovery before the end of 2023. I'm a, I'm a real optimist on this. Uh, in fact, I I would even say that before the 2023, we will have had a, have had a full business recovery because I think that people are going to discover real quickly. I mean, the first the first time that they're that they lose a deal to a competitor because the competitor was face to face with a customer, you know, all this Zoom stuff it's gone out. The, it's out the door. It's out the door. At least. As a as a uh, as, as a relationship uh, building uh, b- 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 environment. The other thing I want to say, though, Ben and Chris, is that we have had during COVID, with a few, a very few exceptions, an unparalleled era of union management cooperation. And I think that the unions and the management recognized that we were going through a true unprecedented crisis and that cooperation would be essential or everyone would lose. And so we've, it's been, it's been an unprecedented level level of cooperation again with, with a few exceptions. Uh, And I encourage management to do all that they can to maintain that because I, I, I think that the recovery is still going to require some special arrangements that can only be achieved when labor and management are are cooperating far better than they have during certainly the 10 years preceding uh, preceding COVID. So those two things, run a high load factor, maintain the high level of, of labor management cooperation. 
Well, David, I'll just say from uh, your lips to uh, the C-suite and labor labor unions' ears, um, I hope the cooperation continues. But I, I appreciate personally you're sharing your, your wisdom and your experience with us today, and certainly our listeners are going to enjoy this. But I want to thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much, Chris. Thank you. David, it's so great to hear your voice again. Listeners know that I teach a class at George Mason University, and they also should know that you've been really helpful to me in that class, too. So thank you very much for that, too, David. I enjoy that very much. You have a wonderful crew of students. <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's some there's some smart uh, men and women there for sure. And so we really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences, taking this time with us. And we hope you keep listening to the show, too. I absolutely will. Thank you very much, Ben and Chris. Well, we've got some listener questions coming up. Airlines Confidential will be right back. But first, our thanks go to Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Airlines Confidential listeners, I'm sure many of you are aware of the terrific conference that happens every year called MRO Americas in beautiful Orlando, Florida. This year, the conference is being held on April 27th through 29th, and it will be a live conference as well as allowing people to come in virtually. And so it's great that they're able to do it in that hybrid kind of way this year. Airlines Confidential will be a media supporter of this event, meaning we will be there live. And so if you're going to be at MRO Americas, please come and say hello to us and maybe we'll even get you on the air. Listeners of Airlines Confidential can save 35% on a full conference pass or on a trade show only pass to the live or virtual event. Use the code ACMRO2021. That's ACMRO2021. Hope to see you in Orlando. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Ben, thanks so much for inviting David. I've always heard so much about him and always in such glowing terms, which are certainly well-deserved. Well, he's been a good friend for a long time. And like he said that he enjoyed working with me. I learned a ton from him and and I continue to learn from him. He's got such a great view on life. He also has a wonderful outlook on life in general, has a great family. And I'm just proud uh, that... I can call him a friend. He's a great guy. Airlines Confidential welcomes your feedback, comments, and questions. Our phone number where you can leave a comment or question is 202-964-0177. Or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential Podcast. 
Ben, as we open the mailbag, some follow-ups from previous discussions. Uh, first, last week we took a question from Brian about his baggage transit from Bogota to Cancun via Miami. Two issues. First, Brian wrote back, thank you for answering my question about transiting through Miami from Bogota. You said the reason my luggage didn't have to be rechecked was because I wasn't technically entering the USA. But when we landed, I did have to go through immigration using global entry. There's no sterile transit from that that I'm aware of in Miami. There would have been nothing to stop me from leaving the airport. Are you saying that since I was connecting, my entry to the U.S. wasn't really processed? Since I'm a U.S. citizen, not really a big deal, but wondering if someone who would need a visa to enter the U.S. could make a connection like this without one. But then, uh, by almost divine intervention, David wrote us the following. Hello, with regard to not legally entering the U.S. during a connection discussed on the last show, I don't believe the U.S. has a transiting terminal at any of our airports. All passengers must still clear immigration with a visa, even if connecting to another international flight. You are correct, though, that the bags do not legally enter the U.S., which is why they don't need to be picked up. Enjoy the show. Keep it going. You know, Chris... I listened to the show last week and heard myself say what I said. And I said, you know, I bet they did have to go through customs because I know that I've always had to do that. So I was just wrong on that. I appreciate that both Brian and Dave corrected me on that. And what I should have said is that their bags did not legally enter the U.S., not that they did not legally enter the U.S. And I'm glad Dave clarified that at least that part of my statement was right. The other thing is, when Brian said they they could have, you know, left the airport in Miami, if that had happened, the airline that they were flying to Cancun would have had to remove their bags from the plane. They would have been noted that they didn't show up for that flight, that they had bags connecting on that flight, and the airline would have had to go find those bags and take them off because the bags wouldn't have been allowed to go on to Cancun without the passengers confirmed to be on the flight. Keeping us honest, listeners, we appreciate it. And then Arun from Dallas took exception to my comments about power outlets and seats. Hey guys, I wanted to follow up on Chris's comments about power outlets at seats. I disagree that most business travelers carry battery packs with them. As someone who has traveled for 20 years for business, I rarely see people with them consistently. Also, many of us have several devices and a pack is not very helpful with a laptop and a phone or a tablet. I see lots of upset comments on the AA Executive Platinum Facebook group when flying the legacy US Airways 321s, many without power. I have enough dongles or cords to carry, including the DC cigarette adapter I had for the old AA Super 80s. The airlines have pulled out IFE and tout their fast Wi-Fi, so they are forcing people to have devices of their own. I think it's a mistake for Frontier to not have powered seats. That should be a given in this new generation of in-flight entertainment. Well, you know... I understand Arun's view, and I can see why that makes a lot of sense for many people. At one point, there was an airline in Iceland, Wow Air, that flew from many European cities through Iceland to the U.S., and they didn't have IFE on board, but they did have power outlets. And the way that airline thought about it is, is as long as we give people power, they can you know, and they'll, they'll be able to charge their own devices. We don't have to provide the content. We just have to provide the power. There was their view, and Arun probably sort of signs up for that view. My sense is that 
it's not free to provide those ports. And most importantly, they break, kids stick gum in them, right? Things, lots of things happen. And even more frustrating, or maybe not even more frustrating, but as frustrating as maybe not having power is being in a seat where you see there's an outlet, but it doesn't work or it's jammed or something like that. So I can understand why a low cost carrier like Frontier, who's not carrying a lot of business travelers, um, would decide not to have power at the seats. I understand why an airline like American should want them on all their planes, because you know you as an executive platinum are going to expect it everywhere, Arun. But I can also understand why some segments of the industry say it's just not that important too. Certainly for international and transcon and major business markets, uh, power is an attractive uh, offering for business travelers. But I guess my point is just um, I've been on enough aircraft, like you said, where the power outlets don't work or there's a switched aircraft and there are no outlets when I thought there would be that I just, I leave the office or I leave home with my laptop charged and my phone's charged and don't ever rely or come to expect the power to work on a plane because you don't know when you're going to get it. And so, um, Arun, you've got a good point, but I just don't like to be disappointed. So I make my plans otherwise. And finally, Matt from New York wrote us back about the issue of airflow from the overhead nozzles. Matt works for Tapas, an airline interior supplier, and he writes, you asked for feedback on the air vent or gasper question. So the vents are controlled by the passenger, as you mentioned, but the returning airflow doesn't only come from the gaspers, but from the overhead main vent also. The vast majority of the air comes from the main vents, and the gaspers just give you a local comfort breeze. For those who are interested, Matt suggests taking a look at a supplier website for Teague's Air Shield. If you search Teague, T-E-A-G-U-E, and Air Shield, you'll get a tutorial on their concept. We're not plugging or endorsing the product, but there's some interesting info on the concept, research, and the technology that's being developed. I really appreciate this answer from Matt. And I also appreciate learning the word gaspers. That's not a word that I that I actually <laughs> knew. I probably should have known that. And there are probably many listeners who've lowered their opinion of me because I didn't know that word. <laughs> but I will call them gaspers from now on. It's like uh, when I talk to my wife, I'll say, turn down your gas, but it's too cold. <laughs> um, no, but that, that is, it's actually really great information. And it's good to know that even with all the gaspers closed, there's going to be plenty of safe airflow on the airplane. Well, Finer Wine is next, and it's brought to you by our friends at TA Connections. Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections have come together to become TA Connections, paving the way for a new chapter in crew logistics management. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections, a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Chris, you're in the batter's box for this finer wine. It's from Jose in Omaha, Nebraska. I've been a Mileage Plus member for seven years and have traveled numerous times with United and was mostly satisfied with their service. But in the last 12 months, I've traveled four times and on three of these trips, I've come home to find missing items from my baggage. The first two claims were paid, but my third claim was denied according to the wording on the denial letter 
because I falsified or altered the information. I explained to the representative that I probably misunderstood or overlooked the question and that it was not intentional. I erroneously answered no to a question that should have been a yes, and for that I was treated as trying to commit fraud. I'm disappointed with United handling my claim this way, but I guess my mistake worked in their favor and they used it to avoid having to pay my claim. Chris, is this fine or is this a whine? Mm, um, I got to give Jose a teeny tiny whine here. You know, it's not okay that anything was stolen from his bags and it looks like United stepped up twice to pay claims and um, he acknowledges that freely you got to fill out the form right. And uh, you can't be uh, shopping around the answers till you get it right and get the claim paid. So he admitted he made a mistake on the form, um, but that's what he submitted and that's how it was evaluated. So I I can't give him credit for uh, making a legitimate complaint about uh, lost item number three. I think that's a real fair reading of that one, Chris. And I think he's a real unlucky guy, too, to have things stolen from baggage three times. I, that happens, but it just doesn't happen that often. And to happen three times in a single year to one person is really bad luck. So, listeners, as we wrap up this week's show, uh, it's time for shout-outs. I'd like to give my shout-out to American Airlines, which has re-signed as the official airline for the Dream Flights Project. If you're not familiar, Dream Flight sponsors uh, the trips for military veterans to go to Washington, D.C. to see memorials and be honored for their service to the U.S., uh, these heroes flights, if you will. I'm sure we have listeners who have worked one of these flights. Uh, I personally stood in the waiting area at an airport to greet the passengers as they deplane and have had my personal family members participate in these flights. They're really a terrific thing. The crew take wonderful care of their special passengers If you have a chance to support this organization, please do. I'm told that the youngest World War II veteran in the U.S. now is 93 years old. So if any of them have not participated, I hope we get them on a plane soon. That is a great program, Chris, and that was a great shout out. My shout out goes to the state of Alaska who did something very creative and said, as of June 1, if you come to Alaska, which is a great time to go to Alaska, obviously, um, we'll vaccinate you when you get off the plane if you're not vaccinated yet. And while I certainly hope that everyone who wants a vaccination by June 1 could already get one without going to Alaska, I think it was actually quite creative that they sort of made the point that you can come here Take care of something that you probably should get take care of anyways. Be outside in this beautiful, in this beautiful state that we have and have a great vacation. And for just stepping up to it and say, look, if you're not vaccinated yet, when you get off the plane, if you come to a vacation in Alaska, you can do it right here. I thought that was a very creative way. And again, maybe there's some people who haven't been able to register yet. And maybe you're even a little uncertain about it, but they decide to take that trip and then they'll get vaccinated and that would be great. So hats off to them for that sort of creativity. Uh, Yeah, kudos to Alaska. They'd probably uh, vaccinate the cruise guests too if we could get our ships there. So that's a wrap for this week's Airline Confidential. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and see you next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.